This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Now, a lot's been made about how the Trump administration has addressed the COVID-19 pandemic. Some believe he hasn't been doing enough to address it at all. Please take a listen to this. You just breathe the air. That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, It's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. This is deadly stuff. It's a little like the regular flu that we have flu shots for and we'll essentially have a flu shot for this in a fairly quick manner. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you, I want you I wanted to uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, because I don't want to create a panic. Stay calm. Uh, It will go away. You know, you know, it is going away. I think the one thing nobody really knew about this virus was how contagious it was. It's so incredibly contagious, and nobody knew that. And uh, certainly I'm not going to uh, drive uh, this country or the world into a frenzy. We want to show confidence. We want to show strength. We want to show strength as a nation. And that's what I've done, and we've done very well. A troubling indictment of the way in which the Trump administration has gone about addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, which sets things up very tensely for that all-important presidential election coming up in two weeks' time. Joining us at this time here on the COVID Report to further unpack the ever-shifting dynamic in the United States leading up to Election Day, we are joined by Mr. Brooks Specter, who is a former United States diplomat for a period of 31 years, who, after retiring, has taken a permanent residency, none other than in Johannesburg, South Africa. Mr. Specter, thank you so much for joining us here on the show and agreeing to be part of this discussion with me here on the COVID Report. Now, for those who may not be aware of the intricacies of leadership, what would you consider as the key things to look out for in a president's response to a crisis of this magnitude? Is it possible that all of the detractors can be pleased or those who remain untrusting both within the president's cabinet and among the populace that presidency governs? Dan, is that a president has multiple roles. One of those, of course, is to manage and lead the the entire government, most of which is composed of civil servants who are career people in all the various government departments and independent agencies and so forth. And there are several million civil servants, but the president is the de facto head for all of them. The second role of the president is to lead by virtue of his or her words, by his or her statements. Leadership comes from the way in which a president sculpts the message, explains the problem, describes the solution, and encourages 350 million citizens to look at something in a certain way. And there's a third Uh, role, of course, which is what a famous political scientist once called the power to persuade. And that means that you are not simply ordering people to do something, 
but you're encouraging people to do something that they think they thought of, but in reality, you have given voice to and directed. And here you're re really talking about other politicians. Uh, Harry Truman, who was a president in the 1950s, used to say, I spend most of my time in this office trying to convince some fool to do something that he should have thought of in the first place. And so those three roles are interconnected, but it's the presidency with its uh, impact on the media, with its uh, effective management of government, and with its uh, leadership within a political party that has that kind of texture of leadership. And if you resist carrying out one of them, two of them, or even, God help us, three of them, it becomes much more difficult. You're simply a caretaker. You're an administrator. You're not a leader. And one of the problems for Donald Trump when he became president was that he'd really never managed a complex organization. He'd run a, in terms of the number of people, certainly, a very small, tightening-knit little real estate development and management company that had large plans and built big buildings, but was actually a very small organization. And so he'd really never gained experience at trying to convince and persuade large numbers of people, both in government and society as a whole, to do something. And he especially had never had any experience in dealing with uh, political figures in a political environment, uh, an environment of Congress and other leaders. And instead, he chose to see himself as a man who could, by his words, excite the crowd, lead them to believe a certain thing, and that almost by magic that would transcend itself and become not just the, the hope of leadership, but the fact of it. And the problem with that, of course, is it doesn't work that way. Indeed, it doesn't work that way. Now, in the case of the leader of the free world, President Donald Trump, and his publicized battle with the pandemic, not just as the president of the United States, but as a self-professed recovered patient of COVID-19, in which instances can it be considered that President Trump is being set up to fail and or look bad, if at all? Or is it a case of him leading the blind while wearing his own blindfold? Well, I don't think he was set up to fail. Uh, because let me, let me draw another distinction. Uh, in dealing with the pandemic, with the virus itself, once it became clear what it was uh, people were dealing with, that this was in fact virus as opposed to a bacterial infection or a simple uh, environmental issue, for example, once it became clear what they were dealing with, the... Um, the ability to bring together the research institutes of the government, the research institutes from private pharmaceutical and medical institutions, from businesses, from universities, uh, the United States has an unparalleled collection of that kind of medical and pharma pharmacological research uh, facilities, institutions, leaders, and professionals. I mean, it's it, and that connection between 
the public, the private, the nonprofit, the for-profit is virtually unique in the United States. And once it became clear that a vaccine was possible and necessary, it was inevitable once it became clear that all of those organizations could cooperate to develop at record speed uh, the kind of research that will lead to, at some point in the future, this year, next year, uh, a vaccine that will work or vaccines that will work because there are different approaches being taken. Uh, some of them deal with uh, the virus directly head on. Some of them deal with encouraging more antibody production in the human body. Some of them deal with the protein that's specific to the virus and so forth. Um, the, once it became clear, all those institutions had to work together uh, extraordinary and rapid progress has been made. Uh, but that is not necessarily the same as the government's response as expressed through the words of the president. The problem is the president has spent uh, most of the year downplaying the disease, downplaying uh, as useless or somehow illegal or unethical or something, um, all of the standard epidemiological uh, public health measures that have really been known since the early 1900s, masking, social distancing, uh, tra trace contact tracing, that is figuring out the tree of connections between one infected person and any other person they may have come in contact with who is now exhibiting symptoms or the disease itself. All those mechanisms uh, were available to uh, public health experts at the time of the great flu epidemic in 1918-1920. They were even made use of uh, in the case of the typhoid epidemic caused by one asymptomatic person in Chicago. They were all put to work that was also early, early in the uh, 20th century. And so that was not controversial science. That was well known and well understood. And public health officials have been urging the president basically since mid-year to please, as a matter of great public urgency, adopt these and lead the government into this process. A complication, of course, in America is that it is not a, a united, single-layer government. There are local officials, there are state, individual provinces, states in America, and national <coughs> Excuse me. I'm sorry, that's not COVID, that's plants and pollen. Uh, I just want to reassure you. Uh, and so bringing a unified process to bear is harder than it sounds. <laughs> and I always sneeze twice too, so sorry about that. Uh, and it requires the persuasive character of a president as well as the ability of the president and government leaders to deliver a solid single message and a message that becomes intensely believed, understood, appreciated, and internalized by everybody else. Unfortunately, the president 
president in the current circumstances chose to politicize that message to divide the country effectively on strenuous public health measures versus it's not so bad, we can deal with it, it'll, it'll pass. And that has been much of the undoing uh, of the country at this point with over, what is it now, 222,000 deaths and uh, five times as many uh, cases and undoubtedly the, the largest single collection of deaths and exposure to it of any country in the world right now. And no real sign of it, of, of it uh, disappearing as an infectious problem in the country. And that is because the president chose largely to use this particular disease, the pandemic, the COVID virus, as a political dividing tool between his supporters and others who urged more public caution. Indeed, and this is a great segue to my next question. Sticking with President Trump, a polarizing figure that he is, his responses to issues such as police brutality, racism, misogyny, and the various protests across the United States have divided the citizens of the country, not just uh, further divided by the ways in which the pandemic has been dealt with in that part of the world. And we'll circle back to the COVID-19 pandemic in a moment. But in what ways does all of the division that he has caused expose President Trump's shortcomings as a leader? And how are world leaders supposed to address sensitive, heated issues such as this in a way that doesn't promote division? Part of the problem for Donald Trump is he has chosen to use his powers of the presidency in the way he speaks about issues and in some of the decisions he can take that are uh, that don't require, say, congressional approval or authorization, he's chosen to use them in a way which accentuates the political divisions in the country that reinforce his supporters' view of him and to drive the people who disagree with him further from him. Uh, uh, most politicians in a democratic or a representative democracy environment always strive to maximize their, uh, their reach, their impact, their level of support. They don't necessarily expect that all their supporters act like religious converts, but they look for the maximum way they can bring people to their side, at least for the purpose of voting for them or their successor or their allies. The Trump administration has chosen a starkly different path, and that is to maximize and intensify the level of support among his supporters without necessarily being particularly interested in those people who disagree with him. And each of the issues that you mention are uh, their, how should we call them? They're, uh, they're, they're the kinds of things that choose, that, that serve to divide people further rather than give the opportunity for a bridge forward. I think the Trump administration or the Trump psyche is saying, if I can just hold on to 45% or so of my supporters who will walk through fire to maintain my 
presidency and the possibility of my re-election and so forth and so forth. Uh, but other political leaders build the system the other way in their minds and in their actions and in their words. And you go, uh, you don't have to go any further than uh, the words that uh, Barack Obama put in his speech, the one that got him real public attention uh, back in 2004, where he said, there's no red America and no blue America, no red state and blue state. There is the United States. And that's a traditional politician's approach to national uh, support. You're not going to get everybody to agree to you. That's impossible. You'll never get a situation where 100% of the people support you on, on something. But you strive to get a solid majority of people, a consensus, an agreement, a national uh, basis of, uh, of buy-in. Uh, and the Trump version of it seems very different to go after intensifying and deepening support among those people who are already on board. And you see that in the way in which he's crafted his campaign. He doesn't go and try to reach audiences and, and organizations and places that are not, for the large part, already in his corner. He goes for the maximum amount of effort at a public rally, this at the time of the COVID pandemic, no less, where the maximum number of his supporters will show up. And the image then is one of a fervent group of several thousand people wearing his patented hat and the t-shirt and holding the sign as a way of showing strength rather than the Biden campaign, which is deliberately chosen to speak to uh, much smaller groups and use the power of social media, online streaming and so forth uh, because of the difficulty in bringing people together for rallies when it is already uh, pushing one's luck in terms of the pandemic to have several thousand people close to each other, breathing each other's uh, air, uh, coughing on it or sneezing on each other uh, and guaranteeing you create in the process of a campaign what's called a super spreader event. Insightful stuff. Now, I'm very curious on your perspective on what I'm about to ask you next, considering that you not only uh, reside in Johannesburg on a permanent basis, but you've also uh, lived in the United States of America, and thus you have a unique perspective of two different lenses with which to make the observations around what I'm about to ask you. In terms of these sections of a particular country's populace that get so disillusioned with their current leadership that they galvanize resources to protest or rebel. Is it as simple as labeling these protesters as violent thugs, quote unquote, or with similar uh, harmful rhetoric? Or does this lend itself to possibly considering the psychology of the frustrated citizen of a country? Well, it's an interesting question, and sociologists and anthropologists look at it a little bit differently. Uh, what they tend to say, and what I've learned over the years, people who are truly dis disillusioned, people who, for example, believe that nothing the government will do will alleviate my pain and my difficulty, they become so disillusioned 
that they retreat back in on themselves and assume that there is nothing that politics can do to solve my plight. In other words, they absent themselves from politics entirely. And you see that uh, in both South Africa and the United States in slightly different ways. If you look at South Africa's elections since 1994, you'll note that the percentage of people participating in the national elections has actually declined every time, year on year on year. And that, to a sociologist, says one of two possible things. One, people are so satisfied with what's going on, they don't see reason to vote. Or two, they are so disillusioned, they don't believe anything that they do will have an effect. And so they just say, forget it, politics is not for me, it's up to the gods. Uh, and I can do nothing about it, I'll just have to do as best I can in my life. There is that group of people that you refer to, the people who actively decide to protest. And in the United States now, it is not entirely clear how big that group is, but it is certainly clear that on special or particular or specific issues, that group is mobilized much more now than it was five, six, seven years ago, for example, uh, around the issue of uh, what I'm refer, what I tend to refer to as racial tumult, stroke, racial redress, uh, rather than simply Black Lives Matter. I think it's a broader kind of topic. Um, the number of people who have joined in in protest and in verbally describing their uh, their feelings has grown significantly over the last half decade or so. Uh, and I think that's, that's a function to some degree of people saying we can make a difference and we just have to figure out the, we have to use the right key to open the lock. Uh, and, you know, is a public march the answer? Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Is voting the answer? Maybe it is, maybe it is. Is it a combination of those two approaches? More likely, because you're also seeing now in the U.S. Uh, with this advanced voting and mail-in balloting that is taking place, there are already somewhere in the neighborhood, if the, if the tracking number is accurate that I saw this morning, something close to 45 million people have already voted two weeks before the election. Okay? 45, and in some states, more people have voted than the total number of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, which is an extraordinary collection of numbers. And we still have several weeks to, well, two weeks uh, to go before that process winds itself down. Um, one of the things, of course, that social scientists point to, to as well is that social media has become a particularly uh, uh, trenchant, strong, powerful, effective way of bringing people together very quickly uh, in response to a question. Uh, it transcends distance to a great degree, it transcends time, and it certainly allows us to reach well beyond our circle of friends to a circle of acquaintances, to a circle of people we don't even know yet, and to bring them together for common purpose. The, the only 
footnote to this, of course, is that it is easy also to get disillusioned. Here you've had demonstrations, here you've had marches, here you've had protests, here you have votes, here you have new social organizations, and yet the problem persists. Then what do you do? And when that happens, the, that other door opens and people may well begin to say, oh, there's nothing to be done. Uh, we either can become anarchist or we can just retreat back to within ourselves. And in some way then, pol politicians and social leaders generally have to figure out how to mobilize that anger, that concern, that interest in ways that build rather than simply allow people to vent their frustrations. And it's hard. And it does set us up, especially for the onlooker looking on, it does set us up very deliciously for that big day coming up in two weeks, as you've rightfully uh, referred to, Mr. Spector. Now, considering the current shape that the United States is in, in terms of their COVID statistics, what impact do you see the result of that election making on the numbers? Do you think the identity of the winner will have a bearing on increased uh, COVID cases or a decrease in COVID cases, perhaps? Well, not it's not going to have an immediate impact. We understand that. I mean, it takes a while to become infected. It takes a while to demonstrate the, the uh, symptoms. And in any case, uh, even if uh, Joe Biden wins the election, he doesn't take office until January 20th next in 2021. So there's a two-month period of getting organized. It's not like the British system uh, where if the vote of no confidence removes prime minister uh, from a party, the other party uh, slides right in in an afternoon and uh, by the next morning is already in existence. Uh, the American system was designed to provide that transition moment because it's not a parliamentary uh, process at all. Um, but the Biden campaign and, the, and Joe Biden as candidate in person has been very clear about saying that in his administration, parentheses, if he should win, close parentheses, uh, he will follow, we will follow the science and we will follow the scientists. And although he doesn't have the, he would not, I'm speaking the hypothetical, right? He would not have the power to order everyone to follow strict quarantines or social isolation or lockdowns or whatever. Uh, is appropriate at that moment, he will have an unchallenged position to convince state governors, to convince uh, other politicians, to convince the citizenry that this path, as painful as it may be, is the one that must be followed if, if the, the back of this beast is to be broken. Uh, and the challenge, of course, is how much more pain economically can the country stand? How much more pain socially can the country stand? And it's not an unimportant consideration. How much more pain can individual families stand if they cannot feel that their children going to school are safe, and so they elect to keep them at home somehow, and then whoever is at home, husband, wife, both, uh, are having to do their jobs, whatever they are, if they can, or subsist on the fact they don't have an income anymore, and at the same time, effectively act as teacher monitors of their children. 
uh, because the children are presumably trying to study online. Uh, so all of these pain points uh, are there, and that and it's going to require some really clever thinking and some very clever politics and some really inspiring national rhetoric to bring uh, most of the nation in that direction, even though there will be a kernel of people who sadly will argue it's all a giant conspiracy to do whatever giant conspiracies are supposed to do. And so the biggest task for the for a new president, if it should be Joe Biden, will be to change the direction, the velocity, and the texture of a new kind of messaging that encourages, cajoles, and eventually pushes people down a different path than the one that the country is to a considerable degree already on. Mr. Spector, if Joe Biden wins this upcoming election, um, you've already alluded to the fact that he'll only take office in January of 2021. But what is the extent of, quote unquote, Trump made mess he'll be left to clean up in, in Donald Trump's wake? And how will he go about addressing the issues Trump left for him to address before he gets to implement his own policies? Well, up until January 20th, he won't be able to do anything about it. Uh, the only thing he can realistically do uh, is put together the kind of administration, the top aides, uh, the not people who will be nominated for cabinet positions. Uh, he will be able to begin to pull that administration together. But by tradition, the incoming president doesn't create, in effect, what is a uh, like a, a government in exile, uh, pushing and shoving its way into the public eye, in spite of the ongoing presidency in the last couple of weeks of of the of the incumbent. But this is unusual times that we're in. This this is close on to unique, and the incoming president, if it were to be Joe Biden, uh, will try to thread the needle of giving clear guidance about what they expect and what they hope to do, even though they recognize that the current president is still the current president until he relinquishes his authority. But so much else hang, hangs on something that we only have talked about uh, it's sort of uh, by alluding to it just gently. Um, a third of the Senate and all the House of Representatives, the two chambers of the American uh, Congress, are up for election as well, among many other offices. And if the Democrats gain control of the Senate, they need to have a net pickup of four seats out of the hundred. Um, and if they maintain their hold on the House of Representatives, there will be an increasing push by Congress to consider the ideas of a Biden administration in the process of considering the nominations for cabinet officials. Mr. Mr. Smith, you're, you've been nominated to be Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, please outline your priorities given our national crisis. Go ahead, that kind of thing. Um, and that will considerably begin to change the texture but it won't affect decisions and it won't affect policies and it won't affect actual activities of government until 20 January. Uh, but 
the nature of the crisis is such that uh, there'll be an awful lot of pressure on the incumbent president, in this case, uh, Donald Trump, to begin to modify and adjust his views in spite of his predilections. Now, Mr. Spector, in keeping with the theme of addressing the pandemic, being that this show is known as the COVID Report, a couple of weeks ago on the COVID Report, we we had the pleasure of facilitating a fascinating discussion about decolonizing Africa's health systems. And one of the themes that emerged from that discussion was the need to explore other ideas that are put to the table to um, help address COVID-19 on a permanent basis. In what ways do you think uh, a stubborn commitment to, air quote, sticking to what you know uh, versus embracing other ideas that can help deal with COVID-19 permanently can impede or fatally damage a country's chances of navigating the storm safely? Well, let me start by saying I'm not entirely clear about what would constitute other ideas. The basic way of managing uh, epidemics at its heart, putting aside whether or not there is a vaccine or a therapeutic measure that's new that works efficiently or whatever, uh, the basics have been known for a century and they transcend the so-called West and they transcend other people. Uh, The issue to its, uh, to my mind, uh, uh, at the heart of it, is the manner in which this is carried out. Uh, it's one thing to show up with a couple of truckloads of soldiers and insist on uh, dealing with it the old-fashioned way. It's an entirely different matter if you make use of social networks, whether they're traditional or new, to carry out uh, the basics of of uh, basic uh, epidemiological behavior in a way which jov- which dovetails with uh, social circumstances in a country, and yet at the same time provides for the appropriate medical response. I mean, an example of that to some considerable degree uh, was how HIV and AIDS uh, was eventually brought to bear much more effectively in South Africa, not not the disease, but the uh, dealing with the disease. Uh, Once it was accepted by government that medicine had an essential part in this, all the other social mechanisms were brought to bear. And as a result, you have an enormously effective program of rolling out uh, the the pharmacological components of controlling that disease that don't at the same time ride roughshod over social circumstances and structures in a country. Um, I'm not much of a fan of people who suddenly show up with magical cures uh, that has the, the, the divine has spoken to them and you should use this or uh, we have a new Uh, a a new method. Uh, There's been enough of that in the United States as it is, and there's nothing there that says you have to decolonize it. You you have a president who's talked about miracle cures and the uh, beneficial effects of sunlight inside your body 
or the possibilities of using bleaching agents as a way of disinfecting the cells of one's body and taking medicines which have no known uh, physiological effect on a virus as a miracle cure. That's magical thinking uh, right at the heart of what is presumed to be a first world uh, leader in medical and pharmacological uh, knowledge. So I don't think there's a I don't think there's an easy uh, pat distinction between the West and post-colonial concepts in dealing with medicine. You just have to find the way that fits the social circumstances of a country to to deliver the medicines, the treatments, the practices which deal with the disease or diseases that are under under concern. Indeed. And finally, Mr. Spector, to wrap this all up in a nice and neat little bow, in your opinion, what role does any particular country's political scene play in changing or shaping the perceptions, views, and opinions that other people from other parts of the world have about that country's people as a whole? I'm thinking about how this question applies to uh, the United States of America as a country in particular. What is the president's responsibility in this instance in terms of the image of the people that that president governs? And furthermore, has Donald Trump's presidency in its current form given the United States as a country as well as American people by proxy a bad reputation? Well, I think the answer to the first part of your question is very simple. Uh, A president must lead. A president must persuade, a president must convince, a president must make people feel that they are part of a larger enterprise in dealing with something. Uh, To the extent to which uh, the the Trump administration has failed on all of those counts is the extent to which uh, the American reputation internationally has fallen on some very difficult times. Uh, That's not permanent. It can be fixed, but people carry memories of how bad something was and how ineffective something else was and how deleterious yet something else was. And it will be, it's going to be a hard hill to climb to get past that. We have just been in absolutely fascinating conversation with Mr. Brooks Spector, a former United States diplomat for a period of 31 years, who has taken a permanent residency in Johannesburg, South Africa, after a fruitful retirement. He has since spent his time doing many amazing things, guest lecturing at Wits University, being one of them. Mr. Spector uh, joined us here on the COVID report to further unpack everything going on in the American political scene, especially in light of the COVID-19 pandemic doing such profound damage in that part of the world. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or stream by www.vafm.co.za.